Welcome to Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. Real yoga, actual happiness, deep living. Sometimes life is hard. In fact, at times it seems that life is hard all the time. And it kind of is. The Buddha is reported to have said approximately, life is suffering. But the Buddha realized what I use as the subhead of my podcast, which isn't to say that I have some leg up on the Buddha. I just came up with the same conclusion from my own time sitting under my own proverbial Bodhi tree, that with real yoga, you can find actual happiness and live deeply. So today, let's parse those three things. First, real yoga. On the 21st of May, I'm leading a workshop on the Bhagavad Gita. And the Gita is regarded as the teachings of Krishna, where Krishna is an incarnation of the sustainer of the universe, Vishnu, who has come to earth to help reset the balance of good and evil. So in the Gita, Krishna, who is sort of masquerading as a human, has uh, this role in a giant battle, and he's instructing a great warrior prince whose name is Arjuna. And they take this pause right before one giant battle. Um, Krishna provides the description of real yoga. And what's fascinating, and I'll elaborate in my workshop, on the 21st, is that um, Krishna says there's a variety of ways to do real yoga. And in having this variety of ways, it allows people of different temperaments and in a different condition, like in different situations, and who try one and find that's not really for me, it gives them a way to find their own method which very much aligns with Ishta, very much aligns with Tantra. And I've always felt that the Gita is really a book about how to live the way that Tantra talks about, weaving this um, force of Krishna, of knowing, of consciousness throughout life, how to live in a way that you're both transcendent and a part of the world. So when I say different methods of yoga, different kinds of yoga, I should clarify, this doesn't mean you can do hot yoga or you can do restorative yoga or you can do ashtanga vinyasa. At the time of the Bhagavad Gita, there was no yoga postures practice. The yoga postures practice actually came more from the tantra yoga of a thousand years later. And I mean, there is some evidence of a earlier practice that has movement in it and various ways to sit for meditation, which are uh, technically postures. But at the time of the Bhagavad Gita, yoga was a mental attitude, a way of acting, being in life, and meditation. So that's what we're talking about, real yoga. 
and all of the postures and whatnot, that's become a way of working in how to live, how to practice, how to get to meditation. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that the focus of yoga has always been about how do you live and how do you come to understand who you are and what that means in living. How do you touch this other part of yourself, yoga, yoking together, right? So it always has had to transcend the physical body, the physical realm, and bring that back. So we're talking about a way of living deeply connected to life's true purpose. And in Buddhism too, there is a practice that constitutes real yoga. It includes eight components, and I'm not a Buddhist, so I'm just you know taking this from what I've heard about Buddhism. But the eight components that make a practice are the right view, the right resolve, the right speech, the right conduct, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right samadhi. And those last two, mindfulness and samadhi, describe meditation, the two aspects of meditation, being present and letting the mind move to that other aspect of who we are. So I wanted to discuss real yoga in Peter's podcast, starting from the very beginning. It was part of my goal, my mission. And I've tried in various episodes to clarify that traditionally yoga is what Krishna and Buddha presented. Postural yoga was designed to make it easier to reach meditation. And, you know, just to linger on this for a moment, in the West, yoga has gotten stuck in a confusing place where it's straddling its original purpose, which has a rich you know, scriptural basis and lots of history and, and still continues with ashrams where the lineages have been around for hundreds of years at least. And from that original purpose in the West, yoga is also straddling like a fitness thing that started up in the 50s and the 60s. And also it's gotten somehow confused with gymnastics, right? Where the important thing of yoga is somehow become doing arm balances and having shocking flexibility and things like that. And, and sometimes, you know, it's like I hear people say, you know, oh, I'm not good at yoga. Oh, I'm not flexible. Oh, I could never do that. Or you know, there's a posture that comes up in a class and because they can't do it, you can see across their face this notion that, oh, I'll never be good enough. And it's such a heart-wrenching thing for me as a teacher because the nature of our business model of teaching yoga requires that we teach certain things as yoga. And I can say till I'm blue in the face, you know, it doesn't matter if you can't do this handstand, and yet people really, really want to do the handstand and think it's yoga. So we're still fighting with that weird straddling thing. Um, when I've tried to do some research on where did this confusion come from, you know, part of it seems to have come from India's own history. 
at the time when uh, the, India was trying to establish uh, independence from Britain and trying to have some nationalistic pride about how good India was and not just um, defer to what the Brits put in the minds of the populace as this is good and your own native stuff is just backwards. And so there was, as part of that, a looking back onto the tradition of yoga and comparing it to what was going on in the West in terms of bodybuilding and acrobatics and things like that. And then part of it, that confusion just comes from Amer American marketing that played up the physical side of yoga and played down or really even just missed the energetics and the spiritual components, which are hard to sell and hard to quantify and really fly in the face of the scientific nature of things here that we've you know, come to rely on. So many people get started in yoga from the physical perspective. They're interested in it, or maybe they're intrigued by it, or some doctor said, this is good for you. So they get into it from that perspective. And the great thing nowadays is that a lot of teachers, many who I get to know because they're in a training with me, they know what the whole of yoga is. They know that yoga has this deeper aspect, this uh, holistic aspect. And so they learn how, and they're very good at introducing people who are coming from a physical perspective into what is the whole of yoga. And then many of their students end up understanding. So there's a path, right? So that's the first piece, real yoga. The second component in the subtitle of my podcast is actual happiness. I think maybe I've spoken most about this throughout the course of the 75 episodes or so. But most of us are led to believe that happiness is a result of our circumstances. That when we get something or when things change where I am, then I'm going to be happy. But the first noble truth in Buddhism contradicts this explicitly. It says, life is suffering. Right? So how can life be suffering and be happiness at the same time? Right? So what can you, how, how can you both say, well, when these circumstances are X, then I'll be happy, and yet this is suffering? the way it happens is it, through the magic in our own heads. Right? In our heads, we can find the way to happiness despite the suffering. When we do real yoga, we start to understand more and more that real happiness, what in Sanskrit is called santosha, is within us, inside, not outside, that we can be contented with our circumstances and look for the joy and beauty in everything. I spoke a lot about this in the last episode of Peter's podcast. It implies that we can stay level, right? It's a great English word, equanimity. We can have that. And then from that position, then we can feel contentment or happiness, to use a uh, synonym for that. 
In the Gita, there's a verse that reads, One who has control over the mind is tranquil in heat and cold, in pleasure and pain, and in honor and dishonor, and is ever steadfast, to whom a clod, a stone, and gold are the same. A person is considered superior who is impartial toward companions, friends, enemies, neutrals, arbiters, haters, relatives, saints, and sinners. And I should say considered superior, that language is because Arjuna keeps saying, what's better to be? Should you do it this way or should you do what you said last is the best way to do it? So this word superior is, it's better to, right? So the aim here is to try to find this equanimity because in the equanimity you're going to find happiness. A very smart yoga teacher who I had the pleasure of training said, this idea makes me feel like I'm not supposed to care about good stuff that happens. Couldn't I just be happy when the good stuff happens and only have equanimity when the bad stuff happens? And it's a brilliant point, right? And the answer is absolutely. Of course, we're going to enjoy when pleasurable things happen. The trap is that we confuse pleasure with happiness. Alan Finger says we have three seconds of happiness when we get something that we want. And then after that three seconds, we start wanting something else. Right? So if we're wrapped up in this, when the good thing happens, when I get what I want, that that's what I'm after, that's where my happiness lies, we're all over and over and over again going to be tricked. And I see this even among really well-meaning people, right? They're like doing their practice, they're trying to stay level-headed, then the good things happen and they're like, yeah, man, now I'm on the path. But the thing is, the path is going to go down again. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down and you can't peg your happiness to that, right? Unless you want a lot of disappointment and a lot of confusion because you think you're doing the right thing. You're doing the same thing you did when the good thing happened, but now bad stuff is happening, right? That's not the nature of it. Uh, Stephen Ross, who's a, um, a yogi in LA, he described how this is wrapped up in the notion of desire, right? Because we tend to want things. We desire something. And then when we get that thing, this is where that happiness piece comes in, right? This like, I satisfied my desire, now I'm happy, right? He said it, it in this way, that, um, and it's kind of cool because it, it literally turns the idea of you get happiness because you got the thing that you want, it turns that idea on its head. Ross said in his book, Happy Yoga, which is such a great title, right? Happy Yoga, that the reason we feel good when we get something is that for the moment when we get something, we stop having desire. Man, I love that, right? The Buddha agreed. The Buddha said that attachment and desire are the cause of the suffering that is life's condition, life is suffering. The cause of that is attachment and desire. Meaning you want something and you're attached to that thing you want. So 
To sum up, real happiness is internal contentment. Contentment regardless of the circumstances. So finally, in the triumvirate of my subtitle, we have deep living. Deep living is my shorthand for being able to be involved in the stuff of life that matters to you. For me, it's not chit-chat about the great things that we bought or the bargain we got, getting something new, the great sale, and how I found it, and the great app I used to find it. Not the indignation we feel over someone cutting in front of us in line, or the sort of weird satisfaction we get from reliving the annoyances of my day and telling someone else about them, like this horn over here that I keep hearing, or reliving the annoyances of my day. Like I just had to retake that sentence because this horn has been blowing over and over and over again while somebody who's in a car is trying to either get somebody to unblock them or whatever. And I could cut this out now, right? And why shouldn't I? This, what do you care? And how does it help me to keep saying this thing about the horn, right? And now it's recorded, right? And yet we do that all the time, right? So these things bring about like uh, emotional reactions, the horn honking, the person cutting me off, getting something new, finding it on sale, all those kinds of stuff. And they're certainly part of life, right? But they're not what I want to occupy my time with once they're done. I would rather just sit silently enjoying someone's company than to fill it with like this superficial chatter. That's why I'm so suspicious of our attachment to our phones. Like, I love my phone, don't get me wrong. I love it as much as anyone else. But I, and I notice right away when I'm like checking Instagram out of boredom, like because I just checked it a little bit ago and then I look at it and there's nothing new, right? I mean, I guess if you check, if Twitter's your drug of choice, it changes so much faster, but still like, what are you really getting out of that? It's just a way to not just sit and be. And so more and more, I'm trying to put the phone down, put it out of sight. And one of the things I'm trying to do more of is play music. I mean, like on instruments, like play it myself, you know? And not for any purpose other than just for the doing of it. It's not like I'm trying to get a band together or I'm trying to become like more of a musician in my life. It's just for the fact that I'm enjoying putting my fingers down on the strings and knowing what the sound is that I'm making. And I, I'm doing this because I know for myself that I get caught up in doing things that I think are important things, right? And that important, quote unquote, isn't the same as deep. So if I'm trying to have deep living, just because I'm doing important things, right? That, that important is coming from my ego sense of like what the world values. Like I'll be happy when I'm in a band, right? Or I'll be happy when my podcast has X or on and on and on like that, right? Deep living is about being 
who you are, where you are, and doing what's right in front of you. And for sure, there's a component of growing your career and self-improvement and all of that kind of stuff. But we are worshiping busyness these days, and we're worshiping success. And we're worshiping them to the point where uh, like Donald Trump's success could wow so many people. Right? And it turns out that, you know, according to the Times this week, it was all a sham, right? And yet we're so wedded to that worldly success as being important. And instead, we have also in us like an intrinsic value. We are intrinsically valuable as expressions of this wondrous universe that we find ourselves in. And right now we have a tension in our society between that, right, that intrinsic value, which is maybe related to community, right? Like you're a part of the community, ergo you are valuable. You're a member of the community. Versus meritocracy, where you're potentially valuable if you improve to a certain level, you get good at something, now you're valuable, right? And this, we see this play out a lot in the language in the political realm, like, oh yeah, look, this immigrant who's here became a doctor, right? Like now he's valuable, right? Or this immigrant here uh, helped find the cure for cancer, so now she's valuable, right? Whereas the value is in being a person in the world, there's already a value to that. And so, Part of this depth of living, I think, is that you, when you stop, when you are clearing out all of the nonsense, then you start to recognize what we, what we say, when, what we mean when we say namaste, that there's a light in each of us. And that light is infinitely beautiful and wondrous, and it's a spark of the divine if you want to use classical language, right? It's the consciousness that pervades the universe is in each of us. And our recognition, when we can do real yoga, pause our mind from its outward focus, experience ourselves as more, come back into living, find happiness that lets us be content and just enjoy what's around us is that we start to recognize the beauty and the wonder in everyone, in everything. And that's the root of things like finding a work-life balance, right? It's the root in doing charity, helping others, not the kind of charity that we're so uh, overwhelmed with now, like uh, philanthropy, right? Oh, I will give you from my excess so that you can build something that has my name on it, right? But like just doing something for someone else, even if it's not organized, is charity, right? Looking outside yourself or even taking care of yourself as though you matter, right? Self-care, taking a day off, 
giving yourself something that you can afford that would make you feel better rather than saying, oh no, I'm not really worth that. So thinking we're good enough and living in that place is deep living. So I'll be talking much more about some of these notions on May 21st. Um, the workshop is called Real Happiness, the Bhagavad Gita as a owner's manual for the human. It's at Ishta Yoga. In the evening, you can look it up online, ishtayoga.com. And I hope you can come. If you're not anywhere near New York, you can still come because we're going to uh, live broadcast it on a platform that lets you ask questions and be a part of the be a part of the room. So you can go to the same website and check it out. And I'll put a link in the show page to uh, how you can make sure you get on the list for zoom you know zooming in or whatever platform we use to come in so i'm going to leave it there for today i um recorded one of my recent meditation classes and i'm going to include that afterwards on this so you'll get to hear the dharma talk at the front of that and you'll um you can do the meditation if you like afterwards as well a lot of people have been asking me for recordings of meditations so i'm hoping that this uh, helps to satisfy that request. And um, next week I'll have an interview with uh, one of my colleagues that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Right? So have a wonderful week and we'll talk soon. Namaste. Most of the podcasts I listen to stop right in the middle of really interesting conversations and tell me about watches, underwear, mattresses, food services, and even like odd things just like out of the blue that I can't even imagine why they're on. I'd rather not do that. So I've been trying to fund Peter's podcast with patreon.com. You can go to patreon.com slash Peter's podcast and subscribe by kicking me a buck, 10 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever makes sense to you. Please check it out and make this podcast commercial-free. Thank you. I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita a lot. Uh, so I was teaching it in the teacher training, and I decided to do a workshop on it at the end of the month. Um, I've always I, I've been reading it for 15 years, um, read all different versions of it and whatnot. And I was find that it's such a cool book because it's um, essentially like guidance for how do, how do you live? How should we live? It's like literally how should you live? And um, the thing is, it's not so dogmatic like the way that many religions feel like giving you 10 commandments or something like that, but rather there's this recognition that we're all really different from each other and that what works for one person won't necessarily work for another person. And in that way, I've always felt the book is very ishta in its nature because ishta, the, the whole basis is that you have to individualize your practice to suit you, your condition right now and your nature 
and come up with a practice that works. So in the Gita, there are um, various chapters, and the different chapters uh, follow um, someone who's asking the questions and someone who's answering the questions. And uh, the, the answer will keep saying, well, this is how you should do this. You know? And then the uh, person asking the questions will say, oh yeah, well, that seems really hard. And so then the answerer says, well then, this is what you should do. And so you, you end up with this bunch of options of uh, how you could do it and sort of the difficulties of the different kinds of ways. But one of the ways is meditation. Like, uh, they all involve meditation. But one of the ways is what we call Raja Yoga or the highest form of yoga. And it's this thing that we do here on Saturday mornings and Tuesdays and Thursdays if you don't work during the week. <laughs> um, so it's that taking the time to let your mind try to come a little more still and that certain things occur when you do that. And um, it gets into this notion of Atman and in different translations, they, they think we're, we're going to be afraid of Sanskrit, so they sort of mush words around, and sometimes it's hard to figure out what they're talking about. But uh, in, in the Sanskrit, the, there's this notion of a self, like I'm me, and then there's this notion of a self with a capital S, that all of us are, are more truly, right? So um, I think I said this the other week that we always think of ourselves as individual first, and then we're trying to find this thing that's somehow overarching. But what's, from the yogi's perspective, what's maybe a more fruitful way to think about it is to turn that on its head and think about there's a wholeness. And from that wholeness comes these decisions to express in individual ways. And we're one of those ways at the moment. And so um, I have always loved the uh, theater metaphor of life, right? Where it's like when you're writing a play, you're you and you're always going to be you. But you can certainly imagine a character who has certain qualities and certain traits and is going to be in this plot and have these things go on. So if we take that as a metaphor for this bigger way of thinking about life, it's like there's this energy, whatever you put in Sanskrit it's called Brahman, because why not, right? It's just a big word for everything. And then from Brahman comes the universe with all these expressions of consciousness. So um, when we do meditation, we let that individual component pause the activity of the, the storyline, much as the actor at the end of this, the play gets to leave the theater and go home and be whole again, be you know, herself again, right? And yet, when you're on the stage, you're totally engrossed in the stuff of the play. Right? So in our meditation, we get to pause from action and allow ourselves to just be like with that capital S self aspect of ourselves again. And according to every uh, 
source from the Gita is written maybe a thousand BC. So it's old thought, right? And everything from there on all the way to what Dr. Chopra outside has to say, you know, it's like there's this <coughs> something wonderful that comes about when you spend some time there, right? When you take the time to allow yourself to check away, like turn your perspective away from the day-to-day, spend some time just trying to be quiet and allowing for yourself to ponder on that other capital S self, then that enriches your life. Um, I I thought I might read a a little excerpt, which I marked with a ginger candy. it's spicy, spicy reading. Um, but the practice that we're going to do today is, is sort of taken from this little paragraph, and it says, um, day after day, let the yogi practice the harmony of the soul. Let him, I don't know why they always say him, let her find a place that is pure and a seat that is restful neither too high nor too low. It's like, put put yourself on a bolster. Um, On that sea, let her rest and practice yoga for the purification of the soul. Let the soul be in silence before the capital S self. With upright body, head and neck, which rest still and don't move, with an inner gaze, which is not restless, but rests still between the eyebrows. And then it goes on to say, you know, some of what what comes from that. So the practice that we're going to do today is just very simple, right? This idea of looking, um, I guess, you know, some practices are done with your eyes open, so you're gazing on a something. But we find that it's so easy to get distracted when your eyes are open, that it's better to close them. So then when you're closing them, where should you focus? And the fruitful place yogis have found is either in the heart center, which is helpful, especially if you're kind of suffering from anxiety or or kind of being fearful of things, or in the middle of the head, so in the midbrain area. And this point between the eyebrows is a place that if you press or if you moisten, if you tap, it tends to direct your focus into your head. So just that, what I just said, is something that's beyond what it says in the Gita, because back then, in the beginnings of yoga, they didn't have all these cool techniques that we have that all emerged during the tantric era, when tantricas came about and said, I'm just going to go and fiddle around and see what can happen. So they held their breath really long to see what happened. They moved their breath in and out really fast to see what would happen. They did different shapes with their bodies, with their hands. They, did all, they tried a bunch of stuff. And some, some um, accounts of it say they were given this kind of stuff, right? Like that was their special gift that they received this information. How do you do this stuff? So however you think it came, it came from this trial, this period where new stuff was coming into the practice of yoga that made it easier to still and have the experience that's asked for in the book. 
right? So the practice that we're going to do today is ultimately to allow ourselves to just focus in the middle of your head and be quiet and be this observer and to aim for and experience a realization, a seeing of that other aspect of self, capital S self. And it's just a being there, right? Often it's marked by just calm or nothing, right? And your mind often jumps in and out if you're busy or worried about things. But just a little of this is really fruitful, which it also says in the Bhagavad Gita. Any amount is good for you. Um, But what we'll do to help us get there is this neat technique that may be good for springtime. It's called buzzing bee in um, English. It's called Ramuri in Sanskrit. And it, it helps you two ways. It's first, the technical of it is you'll block your ears with your fingers up on the top of your head and hum. And when you do, it makes this gigantic sound in your head because everything is now focused inward. So it's just going to be like a kind of sound in your head. And I guess it's that sound that reminded them of a bee flying around. So that's where that comes from. Okay? So we'll do that. When we do it, it, A, gives your mind this huge burst of something to focus on. So it's very good at like pulling you into that attention, drawing you away from the senses and inward. So our first thing that it's good for is what we call pratyahara, withdrawing in. So then once we're there, it also gives us the inclination, you might say, to be listening inside of yourself. So the sense that we have of hearing is usually made by air moving. It creates a vibration that hits your eardrums. But there's also the possibility of hearing from the inside. When you listen inwardly and you're very quiet, very often you'll, you'll start to notice sounds are there as you're listening. There's a hum or a buzz or a ring. I mean, there's tinnitus where you actually have like a thing going on, right? But even outside of that, you might hear another physical sound like your heartbeat. But if you're quiet and after a while your breath becomes still and your heartbeat gets nice and slow, you'll start to perhaps hear some of these celestial sounds, the sound of home, hum, white noise, whoosh. In, in uh, some of the texts, they're very elaborate about it. First, you will hear the sound of the veena, which is what Saraswati is playing up here. Then you will hear the sound of a horn, and you will hear the sound of a conch shell, and you know, and on and on and on. So you'll you potentially hear these sounds, and doing this practice really focuses you on listening inward, so you're more inclined to hear something else. And when you hear that something else, it's, a, it's like a, a big road sign for your mind. Follow this sound, right? And when you do, it's much easier to let go into that other aspect of what you are. So just holding on to all these things kind of loosely, right? They're just like directions go in, but ultimately there's a letting go, a willingness to just do nothing. And since you're all here, you're all 
expressing that willingness. So let's do it. Um, questions about any of that? Erica, anything? Just a quick one. Yeah. Is, is the Gita not Samkhya philosophy? It includes Samkhya philosophy. In fact, one of the chapters is called Samkhya. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Do you like that translation? No. <laughs> I don't like that translation. Um, but I, I had it from a previous 300-hour training where I marked up the things I wanted to excerpt, so... I brought it so I could quickly find this section. What's that? Yeah, I have a translation. Yeah. I like, if you've never read the book before, I like the Eknath Eswaran translation. It's very, it's more contemporary. But I like the Shivananda translation the best because it's most accurate. Oh. You mean the translation is the most accurate? Or Sorry. Like, you think the translation of it is the most accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much a a lot of, um, I think when people go at the book, they think about, okay, so what will my readers be able to understand or what will be most important to them? So then they focus the translation that way. So um, being here, we, we use words that refer to different states of mind and different aspects of like what we would call divine, right? Like Atman is the self. Uh, Brahman is the everything. Ishvara is the sort of laws of the universe. So we use those words around here. So I would rather that be the word that gets in the translation. And instead, in this translation, everything gets turned into God. And it makes it really confusing to read. It makes it sound really religious, so, um, yeah, and this author is also very poetic, so some of his phrasing is like backwards, you know. Come so, so just one more point, so the, um, the Shivananda, you think is more accurate because it harnesses the different... It's just kind of a straight translation of the Sanskrit words. So it's not actually trying to soften it up. Yeah. Yeah, because he's, he's coming out of a Hindu environment where they know all these words and they have a tradition already. So he just says it. Yeah. Then the commentaries, like if you get a, a version of something that has commentaries, those are going to vary also depending on who they're talking to. So Shivanandas are very Hindu. So I don't, I don't usually read the Hindu commentaries. These guys are very uh, Western religion oriented. Exwaran, he's more of a Krishna Murti Gandhi guy, so his stuff goes that way when he's translating. Cool. All right, well, let's do it. Come on to all fours. Thanks for the lively discussion. As you breathe in, curl your toes under, arch and open the cow. And as you breathe out, take the tops of your feet to the floor, press away and round the cat. And then continue between those two.
other thing that that posing B sound does is it really extends the exhale by giving you the resistance of your vocal cords. Let's play a little bit with that. So as you're breathing in next, curl, come into that upper part of that cow. As you breathe out, take your seat back to your heels, back to child's pose or seal pose. We're going to go between those two. So come up on 12 fours. On the exhale, hum as you go back. After your next exhale, when you're back in the seal, go ahead and pause there. And then we'll turn upside down from here. So you can use your headstand or any variation of downward dog that you like. Make your way back down, settling in into a seat on your heels or a cross-legged seat. Take a moment to experience the few breaths that come after inversion.
this whole practice of turning upside down and back up again is another one of those yoga practices, tricks almost, to help with that meditative state. Sit over onto the right side of your feet. Stay cross-legged. Set your hand down on the side where your feet are. Raise your right arm, lengthening up and over. Activating Pingala Nadi. Inhale back upright, lower that arm down, swing your legs around to the other side. Hand down where your feet are, extend up through your left arm. Back to center, lower that arm down. Inhale both arms up, and then bring them back down again. Come back into a cross-legged seat. From your cross-legged seat, inhale both arms up. And on your exhale, twist to the right and breathe here. Let your head come out of the twist once you've found the twist in your torso. Next time you're breathing out, hum as you return back to the center. Inhale, get tall. Exhale, twist to the left. Take your head out of the twist. Exhale as you come back to center. Let your arms lower down. Unwind your legs, extend them out into Dandasana, staff. Hands behind you on the floor, open across your chest, rooted through your seat, lifting tall. Gain the neutral curves of the spine, like it says in the Bhagavad Gita. Head and neck. 
It's nice, stable, strong position. that and find your comfortable seat. I should say that anyone who translates the Bhagavad Gita has done something magnificent. So it's not that this is a bad thing. It's not my preferred one. Start with the alternate nostril breathing so you can get your focus in as much as possible to begin with, this being yet another one of those great techniques. If you prefer to do the Paladir Sasana, you can do that instead. Join your index finger and thumb on the left hand with your right hand, either put two fingers on your forehead or tuck them into your palm. And then with the ring finger and thumb, find the side of your nose where it's soft but right up against the bony part. And do a little self-test to determine which nostril is more open right now. And once you choose one, take a full breath in through that side, close and block both after that, and release out through the other side. Come back in the side you just breathed out from, and then switch. And then we're going to keep going out and back in through one side, and then switch to go out and back in the other side. time with the Nadi Shodana today so that you can really be pulled in at this point where we then do the Brahmori breath. So if it is feasible and it doesn't cause anxiety, you could try holding your breath at the top of your inhale before switching to go out the other side. Just hold as long as you can without it disturbing the smooth, quiet quality of your breathing. 
not forcing it in any way. Holding the breath creates a third part of the breath. Inhale, pause, exhale. You can also regulate the lengths of the inhale and the exhale. Again, if it doesn't create any kind of anxiety or mess up the calm quality of your breathing. But you could regulate it by just pressing slightly in on the nostril that's open. So you constricting that little bit to slow the breath down. If you get good at working with your diaphragm, you can slow the breath down from there instead. time completing whatever round you're in, whatever version you're doing. Keeping your focus inward, like taking advantage of what you've just done, stay focused in and let your hand relax down over your knee for just a moment. Buzzing D sound that we're going to make is purely for yourself. It's not a chant or outward mantra. It's a sound of vibration so you can hear it inside of you, so it could be very soft. And then as we do that, and your focus is pulled at the end of that breath out for the sound, keep focusing inward to be listening to the sound. I'll let you do it on your own. We'll do three rounds of the buzz. And then just let your focus be inward. Your arms can stay up with the ears blocked with your thumbs and the fingers on that sort of center part line of your hair, your head. They could stay that way as long as you're comfortable, but eventually you'll, you'll probably your shoulders need to bring your arms back down where your hands can rest on your knees. So go ahead and bring your hands up now, fingers running along the center of your skull. And three times we'll do the Brahmari sound with the ears blocked.
stay in your meditative place and to bring this energy of the meditations, altered vibration of your thinking and relating. We'll use the technique bringing it into each center, which is called samyama. Bring the tip of your tongue to the roof of your mouth to establish a, a pathway for this energy. And bring the palms of your hands together in front of the heart center. As soon as your fingers touch, your mind will come back online and say, oh, touch. So go back in your meditation place and see if you can sense this more as the energy that underlies what we call touch. Kind of a tingling when your hands come near each other. Move your tongue behind the upper teeth at the gum line. This changes the pathway now to target right into the palms of your hands. And if you move your hands just a little bit so you feel that tingling, and separate your palms just a little bit, you may still be able to feel the energy now more as something like heat or radiance. And if you feel something there, you might even be able to feel if you move your hands farther apart and then almost to touch again. Quality that's more like magnets when you have the positive poles facing each other. They repel, they compress. So whatever the sensation of the energy is, take this energy of your meditation and bring your hands up over your eyes where you might see that energy now as some kind of light or glow. But again, whatever the sensation is, intend with your willpower now, the thing you touch in meditation, the wisdom, the insight, the perspective, to pour in to this headquarters in the middle of your brain. What in Sanskrit is ajna, it means the command center. And we'll send it in here so that now this wisdom and perspective influences all of your commanding, all of your decision-making. The mantra that we use as part of this practice to help reinforce that wisdom will govern here is Om Namah Shivaya. I'm going to say the little pieces of that so you can repeat them a little at a time. And we'll just do them in, in uh, spoken for today. So let your palms come together in front of the forehead and repeat after me, Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Bring your hands back up over your eyes and draw the energy down to your throat center. So crossing one hand over the other, so both palms are facing your throat now, <coughs> will send the energy into this uh, throat center, which is responsible for that elemental force of space where we express and communicate and make art and all of those things. So sending the energy in here from your meditation will bring wisdom in how you express yourself, and also the wisdom to understand others when they're expressing themselves. The mantra to help reinforce this, repeat after me, Om Aim, Saraswati, Saraswati, Namaha, 
Om Aim Saraswatiye Namaha Om Aim Saraswatiye Namaha Aim Saraswatiye Namaha Draw the energy of your meditation now down to the heart center in the middle of your chest. This is the headquarters of that element of the wind where things are bumping into each other and need to relate. And to bring the wisdom here helps you have compassion so that you see others as being like yourself and you're able to have lovingness for no reason, unconditionally. The mantra to help reinforce that Repeat after me. Om Namo. Om Namo. Naraya. Naraya. Naya. Naya. Om Namo. Om Namo. Naraya. Naraya. Naya. Naya. Om Namo. Naraya. Naya. Om Namo. Naraya. Naya. Draw the energy of your meditation now down to the navel. This is the headquarters of the fire element, where we find the ability to see, the ability to transform, to make change. So it's the seat of our courage. It's also obviously the seat of our metabolism. The mantra to help bring wisdom here is Om Namo Bhagavate Vasude Vaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Draw the energy of your meditation down to the pelvis. This is the headquarters of the element of water where our desires are. And here, as we send the energy in, we bring wisdom so that we can clearly see when our desires are leading us towards something that helps us in our evolution versus things that are just habits that keep us stuck in patterns. The mantra to help reinforce that. Om. And then like a drumbeat. Doom, doom, doom. Durgaye. Namaha. Namaha. Om. Om. Doom, doom, doom. Durgaye. Namaha. Om. Doom, doom, doom. Durgaye. Namaha. Point your fingertips right onto the pubic bone. Let your thumbs tip. Touch, thumb tips touch at the top, so you're making a triangle with your fingers. Directing the energy of your meditation now right into the pelvic floor, which is the headquarters of the element of earth, structure, the stability. And bringing wisdom here helps you know how to deal with earth, to be in the earth, to be stable on the earth. So you have prosperity, you have stability in your work and your family. The mantra, Om Lakshmi, Om Lakshmi, Vam, Vam Shri, Shri, Kamala, Kamala Dharam, Dharam, Swaha. Swaha. Om Lakshmi, 
Vam Shri Kamala Dharam Swaha Om Lakshmi Vam Shri Kamala Dharam Swaha Wrap your index finger and thumb right over the tendon that's at the crease between thigh and torso and press down here, rooting into your legs. To reground you, bring you back into the room, back onto your mat, and massage energy down your legs just to get a little more connected around your knee joints, down your shins, down the back of your uh, leg, the calf. And then grab your ankles tight for a moment. Helps to focus you into your feet. And run five lines down the soles of your feet. And work your way onto your back into Shavasana and let your body rest after all that nice work. When we do Shavasana at the end of a asana class, it's really a time to almost meditate to after doing the work, to let go, often you space out, sometimes you fall asleep. Here we just regrounded after meditation. So it's nice to maybe hold on to the groundedness, to be in your body, to feel your support from the ground below to let the muscles have a chance to release from being one way, to let that liquid part of yourself, 75% water that makes us up, have a chance to come to an equilibrium with the earth below. Back up to your practices, like when your phone does the upgrade overnight, you wake up with a new perspective on things. 
new information, new resources. So start to move your fingers and toes. Bring your breath a little deeper. Tip your head from side to side. On a nice breath in, raise your arms up overhead behind you and stretch long through your right side from your fingers right out through your toes. And then reach through the other side from fingers to toes. Hug your knees in, wrap your hands around your shins. And rock a little bit side to side. Rock a little bit front to back. And if it feels okay, you could rock all the way up to sitting. Otherwise, roll over to one side and press up to sitting from there. Make a fist with your right hand and set it just below your navel. Take the left on top of the right and press in here. And let your concentration be drawn to this point. And each breath out, radiate energy from this point, coming back into your body strong, connected, full of wisdom and insight. Come back upright, bring your palms together in front of the heart center, the seat of your compassion, and let your head bow toward that heart center so that your mind will follow the guidance of this unconditional love that you've instilled here. Hariyom Tatsat, have a lovely day. Namaste. That's today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening to Peter's podcast. I hope that you find real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living through your practice. Please support me on Patreon, rate the podcast, and I'll see you next week. Namaste. Namaste.